This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 163, Creation. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. This month is all about God's power over the physical world, starting with our evidence talk with the Appian Media guys last week and continuing this week with the world we inhabit and how it came to be. We will discuss making something from nothing, both in our world and in our own lives, the great lie our enemies are telling and how we can defeat it, the problems with squeezing the Bible into a model built by atheists, and why God's ecosystems work so much better when we aren't in them. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Creation, in the purest sense of the word, means making something from nothing. As in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. First there was nothing, then there was something. The word created actually doesn't appear very often in Genesis 1, at least not as often as I expected. You have verse 1, of course, and then it's mentioned in verse 21 that God created the great sea creatures and great sea monsters. And then there's an explosion, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now we find out from chapter 2 and verse 7 that in the strictest sense of the word, God didn't make mankind out of absolutely nothing. He made us out of the dust of the ground. But that's really kind of the exception that proves the rule, isn't it? We weren't made of anything significant. In fact, if we were to think of something that isn't significant, we'd probably think about dust, about dirt. The point, surely, is that we were nothing of any consequence at all, in any sense of the word. And God made us. And he made us to be something remarkable, the center of all of creation. Surely, in the spiritual sense, if not in the most literal of physical senses, that is creating something from nothing. And it's important for us to understand what creation is because there are versions of the creation story that are given to us by some religious people and certainly plenty of non-religious people. We'll talk about theistic evolution a little bit later on more specifically. But in a general sense, the idea that God created, if you will, the Big Bang, and then all the rest of the world just kind of fell into place all of the star systems and all of the life forms and all of the physical features on our planet, all of this happened through essentially natural processes, maybe processes that God might have guided a little bit here and there, but ultimately the world made itself. There's no creation going on here. The things that were already there are reforming themselves. If we are simply the product of processes then essentially, for practical purposes, we're creating ourselves. And that is the position that the Darwinists, of course, will hold, that we as human beings manage to manipulate our environment better than other species. We manage to develop greater brain capacity and thought process and reasoning and tool making and all of these kind of things, and gradually rose up from the literal muck and mire to the headship of the known physical world. We get the credit in that system, and we like getting the credit. God does not get the credit. And this has profound spiritual implications also, because sometimes we use the word recreate with regard to who we are in a spiritual sense, that we were children of the devil 
we were created in a physical sense, and then Jesus takes hold of us and recreates us. This is a spiritual transformation that takes place in our physical body, but is ultimately about our spiritual standing before God. And I think sometimes, maybe it's just me, I have been left with the idea, or maybe even left the idea, that being created in Jesus is all about making a better version of ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 talks about how we are created in Jesus for good works. Well, I did a lot of good works when I was outside of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I helped little old ladies across the street, and I didn't rob banks or kill people, things of that nature, more than a lot of other people can say. And so it's easy for me to say, well, I came to Jesus, and Jesus more or less kind of polished up the rough edges that I had. And the more I look at the idea of spiritual creation, as opposed to spiritual recreation, if you will, which I do not find in the scriptures, the more I find myself emphasizing the fallacy of this way of looking at things. This is why Nicodemus pushes back against what Jesus has to say, because he doesn't want to be created. He already has been created. He's already a child of God. He already has faith, after a fashion at least. He's relatively content. He's interested in what Jesus has to say, but not when Jesus tells him what he has to say. He's saying, you are not recreating yourself out of pre-existing spiritual material. If you want to come to the kingdom of God, you have to start from scratch. I am not going to improve your existence right now. I'm going to give you a completely new existence. He is making something from nothing with us. The more we embrace this idea and allow him to completely create us, to make something of value out of nothing, out of less than the dust of the ground, the easier it's going to be for us to truly appreciate the salvation that is given to us by Jesus Christ and avoid the example of the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, who really thinks that he has more or less arrived already. Jesus says, you are nothing until I start making something. So embrace your nothingness, embrace your worthlessness so that you can be free to embrace the totality, the completeness, the complete adequacy of Jesus Christ. He will make something out of you, something amazing, if you will realize how little he had to work with in the first place. This is what I've been reading. I picked up the 25th anniversary edition of The Lie by Ken Ham in a religious bookstore recently. And I say it's called The Lie. Actually, the current title of the book is The Lie, colon, Evolution Slash Millions of Years. That's a terrible title, Mr. Ham. I really wish that you just kind of left well enough alone, if only for the purposes of allowing podcasters to be able to recite the name of your book a little bit more effectively. But Hey, you know, you do you. At any rate, the lie is about the ongoing struggle that Bible believers have had with Bible critics over the years. And as the new title implies, this is about the idea that we are here as a result of millions, if not billions of years of natural processes. We are the product of time. We are not the product of intelligence. And Mr. Ham does a very good job, I think, of 
breaking down the issues that we have wrestled with and trying to boil it down to its core, what we are really doing in this spiritual fight. And he's taken the last 25 years to hone and perfect his approach towards such things, including a particular cartoon model. The current incarnation of it basically looks like this. There are two castles. There is the humanism castle and there is the Christianity castle. And each one is built upon a foundation. Humanism is built on man's word and Christianity is built on God's word. And there are soldiers in the parapets of these various castles that are engaged in a warfare. And the warriors for humanism are steadily bombarding the foundation. They are sending all of their cannon fire against the bedrock upon which Christianity is built, upon which faith is built, God's word. All of the attacks are going to undermine the significance, the accuracy, the relevance of the Bible. But the warriors for Jesus, the warriors for Christianity, aren't doing that. They are sidetracked. They are disorganized. They are shooting cannons randomly. They are shooting even at their own foundation. But most of their effort is against the fancy balloons that are flying from the castle of man's word. Balloons for gay marriage and for racism and for abortion and and such things as that. The opponents of biblical morality, the opponents of biblical doctrine, are naturally going to promote a certain lifestyle, or at the very least argue against a lifestyle that is defended in the Bible. And that has tangible, obvious impact on our lives. We don't like those things. We are going to train a great deal of our attention toward those things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But Mr. Ham argues, and I think he's on to something, that by focusing so much of our attention on the tangential aspects, the symptoms, we are letting the underlying concepts, the foundational principles, go untouched. We are upset at the level of sin in the world, and obviously we would like to decrease it if we could. And we see ourselves as warriors trying to preserve a culture, trying to promote a culture, if you prefer it, a culture that is upheld and extolled in the Bible. But when it's just about symptoms, when it's just about what's going on in the world, and we ignore the underlying principles, we're just going to go from one symptom to another. Sinful people are always going to want to act sinfully, even if somehow we could defeat the idea of gay marriage or defeat the idea of transsexual rights or whatever it happens to be, whatever the balloon of the moment happens to be. If we manage to have a complete and total victory, there's just going to be something else to shoot at tomorrow. What we need to do as Christians is undermine the world's confidence in the word of man. Jeremiah 10, 23, the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. We have thousands and thousands of years of history building your life upon human wisdom, upon the latest human philosophy is nonsense. You are destined to fail in a situation like that. What you need is a foundation that is real, something that is substantial, something that will endure the test of time. Our enemies may be pounding away at God's word and in individual lives and in individual cultures, maybe it's working. But in the big picture, in the long run, the word of God is always going to win because God's always going to win. And if we're going to win any kind of significant culture battle at all, this is the way we're going to have to win it by explaining to our neighbors, explaining to our friends, our family members that you are engaged in a fool's errand 
trying to find some human rationale, some human logic, some human explanation for who you are and what you're all about. You need God for that. This is the battle that you need to be fighting in your life. Go ahead and fight the battles about the symptoms if you want to, but don't forget what the real war is. This is what I've been hearing. I'm going to use the term theistic evolution as kind of an umbrella term to refer to any kind of effort to bring together scientific philosophies, dating mechanisms, etc., and the biblical record. And the appeal is obvious. We like to be scientific. We like to be intelligent. We like to fit in with the smart people on earth. And if we can do that and have the Bible, then why not? Well, the problem is with regard to origins, with regard to where we came from and such, that the Bible's just too clear about who we are and where we came from and what God did to bring us into being. If Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are not quite specific enough for you, I'd refer you to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, where in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God tells Moses and the people, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The clear implication is here that the people of God were given a seven-day work week to commemorate the seven days of creation. And they took one of those days off because God took one of those days off. Everything that was ever made in the physical realm was made during those first six days. Now, obviously, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. But it's what the Bible teaches. And I have yet to find someone who made a cogent, consistent argument from the Bible alone saying that there is actually a much better way of understanding the biblical record than believing in the six-day, 24-hour-day creation. It's simply not what the Bible says. The Bible says we were created in six days. And before you relegate that to the ash heap of irrelevance in the modern day, let me give you a very basic question to ask yourself. Do you believe God more or do you believe science more? And if, for whatever reason, you want to say, well, I'm kind of leaning towards science, actually. Well, which science are you talking about? Are you talking about today's science? Yesterday's science? Last century's science? Next year's science? Next century's science? This is one of the great advantages for listening to somebody who is always right, who does not evolve. His explanation is always going to be correct. You may or may not believe it. You may or may not understand it. But it's not going to change. Science is always going to change. And going back a little bit to Mr. Ham's book, The Lie, I want to emphasize that there are some real theological problems that we run into when we start tampering with the Word of God in general, and certainly when we start tampering with the Word of God as it regards who we are, where we came from, how God came to make us exist in this physical world. The Bible teaches that we were here in a perfected world human beings placed in the Garden of Eden. We sinned, we were cursed as a result of sin, and because of that curse, death came into the world. The evolutionary philosophy, whatever version of it you want to look at, could not be further from that story. Darwinian evolution, every other form of evolution, including theistic evolution, is a story of death upon death upon death. You can get simple examples like thorns and thistles, 
which were given to mankind as part of a curse after the fall, when the creation was complete, being found in strata that presumably was millions of years before human beings ever came on the scene. Well, which is it? Did death and pain come as a result of human failure? Or did it come because that's the way God made the world? If there's no fall, if there's no Adam and Eve, if there is no literal story of the creation, then sin is not the problem. Sin is not why the world is in the shape that it is in. And I don't doubt this is part of the reason why people push back against the idea of a God-centered universe. If there's no fall, then the world that's around us is not our fault. We're fixing things rather than being the inherent problem in things. And remember this word good that the record gives us in Genesis chapter one. God saw these things and he made, and behold, it was good. It was good. It was good. Except after he makes human beings, of course. And then he says, it's very good. Well, good to who? Good in what sense? Good surely means complete, proper, according to the will of God. The Garden of Eden was a paradise. The word Eden literally means paradise. Theistic evolutionists would tell us that there's nothing good about the world. That we are constantly evolving, that we're constantly growing. The world that is around us is changing on an ongoing basis over billions and billions of years, making itself over into something else. Creation isn't finished. Creation is ongoing. There's nothing good about it because there's nothing complete about it. Again, taking the personal aspect of God's creation out of it is the whole point for the hardcore evolutionists. Do we really want to go down that road? The further we get away from taking the Bible at face value, the more we are setting ourselves up for rejecting God's will for our life, the nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our heavenly home that waits for us after this life is over. When are we going to stop? What part of the Bible do we believe and what part of the Bible do we not believe? I urge you to accept the Bible, the whole Bible, as God's will for your life, as the revelation of his mind, telling you who you are, where you came from, and where you're going. Let God speak. He's the one who was there after all. He's the only eyewitness to all these events. And Genesis 1 and 2 tells us how those events went according to that eyewitness. I think we'd do best to pay attention. This is what I've been playing. Cascadia is a game in which you are building an ecosystem, your own personal ecosystem in the American Northwest. You have a tableau in front of you, you have a starting tile, and you build on that tile by adding hexagonal pieces. And on those pieces, you put discs that represent animal species. There are five animal species in the game. You work with bears and elk and salmon and hawks and foxes. And in a perfect world, of course, you create an environment that is suitable for all of these animals. Every animal wants something different. Bears want to be in small groups isolated from other bears. Elk want to be isolated with elk, but not necessarily in small groups. Salmon like to run in long streams with other salmon. Foxes like to be around other animals. Hawks like to be isolated, even from other hawks. You use the different preferences of the different animal species and the different environments on the tiles that you draft for yourself to create a board that is ultimately, as is generally the case with these kind of games, going to give you the most number of points. And the one who has the most points at the end of the game is going to win. 
I love this idea. I, I love the idea of creating a little world for myself. And if they're cute little animals in it, so much the better. I found myself thinking about Cascadia with regard to the creation story and God's work in creating the world in the story of Genesis chapter one. And what he says, especially in verse number 28, God blessed them, that is mankind. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A very similar thing is said after the flood, when Noah and his family disembark from the ark, We're told in verse number two of Genesis chapter nine, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are given. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which the world is made for mankind, that everything is suitable for us. It's the right temperature. It's the right barometric pressure. It's the right weather conditions, etc. But there's also a very real sense in which we enter into a created world that is already perfect, a world that works for all of the animals, that is in perfect balance. And then we go in and essentially mess it up and do so deliberately because ultimately our goal is not to achieve the best for the hawks and the foxes and the elk. We want the best for human beings. I think most of us would prefer, all things being equal, to be kind to the other species also. But ultimately, we're in this for ourselves. And that is a divine mandate that is given to us, by the way. This isn't just us liking human beings better than animals. God has told us to do this with the world that is around us. And sometimes... The adaptations that we make to the world, whether we're talking about mining for coal or we're talking about farming in grasslands or whatever it happens to be, these efforts do not benefit certain species as well as they might. I'm all in favor of being responsible. I'm all in favor of preserving nature as best we can. But always the mandate is for us to take care of ourselves, to make the world suitable for humans. Because ultimately, there's a lot, especially in the context of the fall, a lot about this world that is deliberately painful to human beings. Left to ourselves, we're going to die out there. Let's not kid ourselves about this. We are blessed by the Lord with power to alter our surroundings far more than any animal or bird or fish. Beavers may have some control over the world that they're around. Elephants may have some control. Termites may have some control. But that's nothing compared to what human beings do. It is our job to take control of the world and make it suitable for human beings. It should inspire us to think of the day where a different kind of world is going to be given to us. We're told repeatedly in the book of Isaiah and Second Peter, other places, that a new heavens and a new earth is being prepared for us a world that is not going to have to be tweaked, a world that is perfect, once again, and our place in that world is secure. We're not going to have to worry about how we fit in or how we alter things to suit our purposes. We're going to be in the presence of God. We're going to be in the presence of perfection. We ourselves are going to be perfected. As we work in this world that's around us, as we struggle with creation, as we get upset at mosquitoes and dandelions and whatever else it happens to be out there that's causing us problems. Realize that this is only a foretaste of the power and the majesty of God. As wonderful as this world is, a better world is coming. That is a world truly that is made 
suitable and ideal for us as human beings. And we're going to be there forever. May the Lord hasten the day. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.